0: Okay, so I guess we should start. So, thanks everybody for coming today. And again, we have a sparse class, but that's to be expected. because guess they're all on the mass pike, trying to get where they want to get to. So today, I thought we would talk about humanizing antibodies. So I guess when I was doing up the schedule early, uh, late in the summer, And I put this down, I sort of put down monoclonal antibodies and vaccine tech, but I couldn't come up with any real changes in vaccines besides the stuff that we talked about when we talked about the vaccines the other day. So I guess next year I should take this particular lecture and put it right behind the monoclonal antibody lecture. But this year we did monoclonal antibodies, vaccines and now this one, but next year we'll do monoclonal antibodies this one and then vaccines. So anyway, talk more in depth about antibodies as drug agents and how we're going to be able to take those monoclonal antibodies that we talked about the other day and turn them or use them. We're I mean, not turning them into drugs, or so use them as drugs. So right now, right, the major sort of thrust for monoclonal antibodies is to use them for human therapies. So when we talked about monoclonal antibodies, we talked about taking a, or taking as many B-cells from the mouse as we could find, fusing it with a myeloma cell, which is a mouse B-cell tumor, and that immortal cell line that's going to have the specificity of the B-cell and the immortality of the tumor, we're going to be able to take those monoclonal antibodies and raise them and make an unlimited amount of those antibody molecules. The trouble with that is right, we're taking a mouse protein and we're going to inject it into a human being. So even though these monoclonal antibodies are probably going to be IgG antibodies, they're probably going to have kappa chains, right, that, that human immune system is still going to recognize those mouse immunoglobulin molecules as foreign and the immune system is going to try to destroy those antibody molecules. So now people are in the process of trying to make human monoclonal antibodies. So we don't run into that problem. We're gonna use them, we're gonna put them into patients and they're starting to develop or trying to develop myeloma lines as fusion partners, trying to find uh, good B cell lines that we can use as the immortalizing cell line. But there have been some problems with that. So remember, if we're talking about those murine immunoglobulin molecules, the major problem is going to be immunogenicity. The human immune system is going to recognize them and they're going to bind to them and eliminate them from circulation. So what that means is, when we first take those murine immunoglobulin molecules and inject them into a patient, there'll be a certain half-life for those molecules couple of weeks maybe, by the time the the human immune system recognizes them and clears them. And then, this is not just going to be a a one-shot sort of treatment for individuals, we're going to have to inject these again and again and again into a patient. So you would think after a while, all right, this is going to be the efficacy of your drug. So this is going to be time, this is going to be the amount of antibody in the serum. It's gonna increase this way. So for, on that first injection, you know, we'll get a pretty good amount of drug. We inject it again, right? we're not gonna get that much drug because a memory response will be, have taken place by the human immune system. And when we inject it again, actually, right, this shouldn't look like this, should it? If we need this to look like this, it should look like this, right? Because the time and it's going to get smaller and smaller the amount of time because that memory response is in there. So there's going to come a point in time when you inject that drug, it's only going to stay in circulation for you know a certain amount of minutes. So the immunogenicity is what's problem. So those antibodies are going to be quickly cleared from the blood themselves. We're going to be able to make circulating murine antibody and human antibodies, right, because we're going to put those murine monoclonal antibodies in. And when those human antibodies bind to them, right, we're going to get those immune complexes that we're talking about only now they're going to be murine human immune complexes and a lot of these, these complexes can cause allergic reactions or other sorts of damage to other systems inside the body. And a further problem that's going to happen with these murine immunoglobulin molecules is that the FC part of the murine monoclonal antibodies, they're not as effective as binding or the, the FC receptors of the human immune system aren't that good at binding and recognizing the FC portion of the murine monoclonal antibodies. Right? So we're going to get a, uh, a decrease of effector function that way due to troubles with binding to the FC portion of those murine monoclonal antibody molecules. Right? And that's going to be part of the effector function. So, I'm going to sort of put these all over like this. So problems with those human hybridomas, those mouse myeloma fusion partners, right, if we take a human B-cell and try to merge it with a murine myeloma cell with a B-cell, right? because we can clearly fuse, we can make a heterokaryon out of any two cells. If we try to do that, we're going to lose most of the human chromosomes. When we, remember we talked about the heterokaryon. after a certain amount of generations, it's going to start to get rid of chromosomes until it comes back to the proper chromosome number. If we do that between a mouse cell and a human cell, right, it's going to be the human chromosomes that are going to be shed, and that's not what we want. Right? We want those chromosomes that contain the specificity of the immunoglobulin molecule to be retained into the, into the hybridoma. But the human chromosomes are going to lead. We don't really have any good myeloma lines, right, and that's what we need for immortal cell growth, although there have been studies, right, that come out to talk about new possible cell lines, but in general, those cell lines haven't been developed yet. We're going to have trouble obtaining antigen-primed B cells, right, if we're going to take those human hybridomas, we're going to have to take them from human peripheral blood cells which contain a few, you know, very few activated B cells. It's not like we can go into a patient and take out a patient's spleen and isolate all the B cells, right? That wouldn't be a good thing. And it's not like we're going to be able to take certain antigens and inject them into humans, right? So that those humans are going to be able to develop antibodies to these antigens that we are looking to make antibodies to. I guess if you paid somebody enough money and you said, hi, you know, we want to make an antibody to this, but, right, so it's not going to be able to do that. So it's going to be hard to get the B-cells, right? it's going to be hard to uh, isolate the B-cells that we're looking for. And in the experiments when this has been done, right, we don't make a lot of IgG molecules. we Make a lot of IgM molecules. And we talked about IgM molecules before, right? They have high avidity but low affinity, and we want high affinity antibody molecules. So we want IgG subclass. We don't really want IgM. So there really is this major problem with finding or developing or isolating human cells. But what we can do is we can create what are called chimeric human antibody molecules. When you think about it, there's only a small portion of the antibody molecule that we need need to isolate that are going to be responsible for binding to the antigen. Those are the CDR regions. If we could take those CDR regions that were of interest to us and use them, so the remainder of the molecule is the framework, We talked about the CDRs themselves. The organization of doing this, we can isolate DNA of the segments that can encode the antigen binding site from a murine antibody and by using recombinant techniques, we can place them into a cDNA encoding a human myeloma protein. And with doing that, we could create this hybrid gene or this hybrid protein which is part human and part mouse. Okay. So this antibody, right, by using this recombinant technique, is called a humanized antibody. So here we can clone the promoter and the leader and the variable region sequences of the mouse and the constant region from a human antibody molecule. Because right, that's all we're looking for here, that's all we're looking to do, is to get as much of the human protein as we can. Right? And these chimeric antibodies, these humanized antibodies, have been made. Right? So, um, so basically this is what we're talking about. We're going to take the constant regions of the human and just take the variable region, Right? those VJ, the variable regions, And stitch them on. So what we're going to get is we're going to get an antibody that's going to be a lot human and only a little bit mouse. Rather than being 100% mouse, now it's only 34% mouse. So what this might do for us in this step, right? It might allow us to do this, right? So we might be able to get several applicants and not several applications, but several injections of these monoclonal antibodies into patients who need them. So, because the constant regions are human, there are far less problems with the immunogenicity, right, because the human immune system is going to recognize them as being human antibody molecules. And it's going to retain the biological effector functions of the human antibody molecule because we're going to be able to use a human FC portion of the molecule, right, because we're putting on the constant region of the the human heavy chain. So that's going to give us the human FC portion. But the variable region is still going to evoke an immune response, right? Even though we've still made it, instead of having 100% mouse, it's still going to be 34% mouse. So when those human antibodies are going to be able to recognize the mouse protein and they start binding over here, that's going to effectively delete, right? It's not, it's not going to allow this drug to be able to bind to its target. So this isn't going to work. It's better. And we can get a little bit better in terms of the ability of this antibody to be able to use it as a drug. But it's still not where we want it to be. It's still not close. So, what else could we do? We could make even a better chimeric antibody molecule. If we could isolate just the CDRs instead of taking the entire variable region and we know right or I hope we know I hope we remember right that most of the variable region is going to be those framework regions right the regions in between the CDRs so if we could use molecular techniques to take out the CDRs of the mouse variable region and the rest of the human antibody molecule itself right so this is what we're going to try to do now just taking out the CDRs here and placing them into this human antibody. Now we have 10% mouse protein. And again, if it's 10% mouse protein, it should be, right, if it was 30%, if it was 10%, it should be 20% better. What's 20% of this line? So what would it be? Maybe like to there and to there, right, something like that. So it's getting a little bit better, right, except we still got some mouse proteins in there and we know that the human immune system is pretty good. right? Much less immunogenicity, it retains the function of the human antibody molecule itself, but right, because we're not very good at doing our molecular techniques and getting those CDRs exactly where they have to be, right, we do get a little bit of a reduced affinity of the molecule itself. right? Because we're not placing those CDRs exactly where they need to be. And the immune system of the human is still recognizing, even though it's 10%, it's still recognizing, right, the remainder of the molecule itself. So people are working on that aspect of it, of these monoclonal antibody molecules, right. Before we start looking at other techniques that are being used, let's look at one more type of an antibody that's being used as a drug, that's being used as a therapeutic moiety, all right and these are called bispecific antibodies. They're heteroconjugates or hybrids of two different antibody molecules themselves. We have all these molecular techniques. These are pretty standard things that we can do. So if we make these bispecific antibodies, half of the molecule is going to have specificity, let's say, for a tumor cell, and the other half of the molecule is going to have a specificity for an immune effector cell. So what this is going to do for us is this is going to get either T cells or the cells that we're really interested in getting or turning on, right? get them real close to the tumor cell itself. Let me just sort of put up a picture, oh cool, this must have been my early days when I I'm not going to do that one anymore. So anyway, so here's the example, right? And now it doesn't matter if we're going to use these, right? So these are probably going to be those hybrids. This is probably going to be, right, a human with the CDRs of the mouse, right? Because that would be our most effective therapeutic agent right now. But in this instance, we have the specificity. We've discovered some sort of antigen on the surface of this tumor cell, and we've raised an antibody to it, so we have this aspect of the molecule going to be able to recognize the tumor cell. (coughs) We're going to have this half of the molecule going to be able to recognize the T-cell. When this recognizes the T-cell, there's probably going to be cross-linking of the receptors. If we're going to be right, we could use an antibody to the T-cell receptor. It'll cross-link the T-cell, it'll activate the T-cell. And because this T-cell and this tumor cell are now in contact together, we're hoping Right, That that T cell is going to be able to recognize that tumor cell and this would be just a single example of what's taking place. When we're going to inject these antibodies in, right, we're going to inject a large number of these antibodies. I don't know. I don't know how to figure out Avogadro's numbers. So it's probably going to be billions of these molecules themselves. But the specificity of the antibody, of all those billion monoclonal of, the, of these therapeutic antibodies that we're going to use, right? every single one of them is going to be able to recognize the tumor cell and we're hoping that every side of this is going to recognize other individual T cells or just random T cells. We're just hoping that right, this ability of this antibody to stimulate this T cell is going to stimulate the right T cell that's going to be able to recognize and respond to that tumor cell itself. So we can do that. Well the other thing we can do, we can cross-link this will activate T-cells, it could activate macrophages because if we're talking about macrophages and neutrophils and other cells, oh, that's annoying already, right? here's an example of a monoclonal antibody that has this specific recognition of a tumor cell, right? specific recognition by activating the CD3 molecule and that's probably going to activate the T-cell itself, and at the same time, Because this is a human or a humanized monoclonal antibody, the FC receptor right here is going to be able to be recognized by other cytotoxic cells probably by an ADCC directed method. So, this macrophages NK cell could also serve to attack that tumor cell as well. Because remember. Whenever there's an antibody going to bind to a cell, that ADCC mechanism of the FC receptor on that cytotoxic cell is going to be activated and start to destroy that cell. If it destroys this T cell, nah, we don't care, we got lots of T cells, right? What we really need it to do is to destroy that tumor cell. So this basically, these monoclonal antibodies or these specificities are going to allow right, the specific targeting of the tumor cell itself. What we really need, what we really have to have, is the specific antigen on the surface of the tumor cell. The other thing about these molecules, right? we can take these hybrid molecules, is we can use them as another sort of killing carrier. We can take these chimeric monoclonal antibodies and we can couple to these molecules some sort of toxic cargo that we would be interested in delivering to the tumor cell. We're going to use an adapter to be able to label the tumor cell with a specific toxic agent. So that constant region, we can manipulate the constant region domain on that tumor-specific monoclonal antibody. Again, we're still using Right, these hybridized monoclonal antibody molecules, we have the specificity of the tumor cell. And we're, gonna, we're going to non-specifically bind a toxic agent. And people have used a whole bunch of different toxic agents. They've used radioactive isotopes, right, like eutritium 90 eutritium 90 is an isotope used in, in nuclear medicine, in, in, in medicine to be able to treat patients, or we could couple a Toxic reagent, some sort of chemical reagent like diphtheria toxin. Diphtheria toxin is a very good toxin. That's when we talked the other day about certain infectious agents and how those infectious agents, sometimes it could be the toxins that are the ones that we need to be able to eliminate. Diphtheria toxin is one of them. We have no problem eliminating the diphtheria organism itself, but when the toxin gets released, it really starts to screw up the interior of the cell. So what we're going to do is we're going to take those humanized monoclonal antibodies and we're going to attach this toxin. So that when this monoclonal antibody is now injected into the patient, it has the specificity of the tumor cell. And when that tumor cell, when these antibodies are bound to the surface of the tumor cell, right, these antibodies are going to be internalized into the cell itself, and that's when the toxic residue is going to be exposed to the interior of the cell, and that's going to allow for the destruction of that cell. So we have a whole bunch of these different sort of things that are taking place, and many of these antibodies are in human clinical trials right now. We're going to use them as therapeutic agents. So, we're going to be able to deliver the very specific chemotherapeutic agent or toxic agent to the tumor cell itself so rather than exposing patients to these high dose chemotherapy regimes right that are knocking out the immune system and debilitating the the patients themselves or exposing the individuals to high doses of irradiation, right? For some sort of irradiation therapy to eliminate the tumor cells. We have this very specific, this very pinpoint way of having these antibody molecules recognize only the tumor cell that we're interested in. And again, that's coming from the specificity of the variable region, right? To be able to have this interact with the tumor cell and deliver that toxin right to the tumor cell itself with hardly affecting any other cell inside the body. So this is the area that a lot of these monoclonal antibodies are being used or being used for right now. So if we're in business and we're a company and we're thinking about using monoclonal antibodies, right, one of the things that comes up during production of monoclonal antibodies is going to be the cost. We have to be able to take this biological right sort of system that we have and produce the monoclonal antibodies with them. So that's you know at the at the laboratory level right for any sort of researcher on the bench top it's not that much of a problem. All the techniques for making monoclonal antibodies now are, are pretty well established <clears throat> to be able to have the proper you know murine. B-cell lines, to have the proper murine myeloma lines, those are all in place to be able to isolate the particular monoclonal antibody we're interested in. Those techniques are pretty well established now. What really comes down to is the production of the reagent itself. So imagine if we're on a commercial scale if we're up here in one of our laboratories and we just need these monoclonal antibodies, we could probably get by. Yeah, you know, t- depending upon how much work we're going to do. <coughs> excuse me, with our monoclonal antibodies, we could probably get by with a low level of production. You know, maybe producing our antibody molecules in a, in sort of a liter, liter quantities. That's not so bad, but imagine if we're a pharmaceutical company and now we have to be able to produce this drug, since this is what it's going to be, we have to be able to produce this drug on a massive scale. We're not talking about sort of milligrams, or if we're lucky, sort of grams, for individual benchtop researchers. We're talking now more about probably kilograms worth of monoclonal antibodies. So the cost of producing and maintaining any of these antibodies are going to be immense, right? So the maintenance themselves of the animals, we have to be able to house the animals, we have to be able to change their bedding, we have to feed them, right? Because we're going to need a whole bunch of different animals. The myeloma cell lines, those are easy to take care of. We can just grow them in the incubator, but in these means that we need a lot of mouse colonies, right, we need lots and lots of mice because we're going to inject these individual mice with the reagents that we want to make them a monoclonal antibody to. So we've got to keep those mice happy and we've got to keep them warm and we've got to keep them fed. So we're going to have large animal colonies. When it comes to tissue culture, to be able to do this, once we have that particular hybridoma that we're interested in producing, we're going to have a lot of media, a lot of serum, a lot of incubators, right? We have to be able to grow those cell lines, and we're going to grow those cell lines, not so much in incubators that we can do on the on the bench top in a, in a regular research laboratory, but these are going to be industrial scale incubators. Industrial scale uh, tissue culture techniques, where we're going to make gallons and gallons and gallons. Oh, sorry, I should use the metric system. We're going to make, right? Kilo, um, kiloliters right we're going to use lots and lots of tissue culture media so these incubators these tissue culture facilities have to be immense because we have to be able to isolate a lot of these things and then from there now we have to do these right these large scale protein purification techniques so the things like chromatography media and different columns and detectors and to be able to isolate all these proteins in mega scale right gets to be very, very, very expensive. So a lot of techniques have been used and a lot of techniques are now being used to be able to almost eliminate all of these things. right? All of the animal maintenance, all of the tissue cultures, all of the things that are going on with bulk production of monoclonal antibodies. So these methods, these different methods are going to rely on bacteria and molecular techniques and these are now Right, sort of the 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 methods of choice, and the major sort of method of, of choice now is called a phase display library, right? And a phase display library, and a phase display library is a different approach to engineering a monoclonal antibody. Okay, if we're talking about making a monoclonal antibody itself. Right, we're going to take the antigen that we want we're going to inject it we're going to harvest spleen cells or if we're talking about human perhaps human monoclonal antibodies we're going to harvest peripheral blood cells and we're going to proceed from there that is so 20th century well actually a lot of these phase display libraries came on board in the late 1990s so i guess we could say that was so 20th century but in the 21st century right we're using phase display with phase display we can generate all of the different antibodies we can and then see which one of them react with our antigen. It's a little bit of a twist. Before, we were taking our antigen and injecting it into an animal and and trying to get one of those antibodies to our antigen of choice. But now what we can do is now that we have an entire, we basically have an entire immune system in a tube in the freezer. Because we're going to use viruses to be able to do this. So we're going to employ PCR to amplify DNA that are going to encode. Right? What do we need? What do we need if we're going to make a molecular system? Well, we need the antibody heavy chains so that's pretty easy, right? When we talked about right, doing all our sequencing and finding all of the heavy chains, that's easy to do. We can take PCR primers and be able to amplify out the heavy chain right, areas of the human antibody, right? The human antibody DNA. We can get light chains. Right? That's easy enough. We know where all the light chains are. We can either take the kappa or the lambda light chains from hybridoma or B-cells of any animal that we can. So we now we can make antibodies. We can make human antibodies, mouse antibodies, rabbit antibodies, dog antibodies, camel antibodies, mermaid antibodies. We can make any kind of antibody we want if we just find the cells from the species of choice. Right? So we can do any of those things. We're going to amplify the mRNA from any of these cells and these sequences are then going to be displayed on the surface of our phage itself. So, here's our normal sort of phage particle. This is the one that was used in the beginning, the M13 virus, right? the phage itself. Out here on the pili, this is where our FAB portion of our antibody molecules are going to be displayed. right? Because we're going to be able to clone in the sequences that we want to, and then they're going to be displayed on the surface. So we're going to be able to do this, right, when we when we isolate up all of our PCR primers and we get all of these different light chains and all these different heavy chains, once the virus start to recombine with each other, our entire library of phage display, right, virus, so here's a, another picture of it with the FAB portion, right, with the with what we want to display out here because we've put it in the proper orientation just to display out here on these proteins. We can take these, we can now expose all of these different phage, right, and we're going to have millions and billions of these phage. It's nothing to grow, right, these phage anymore, right, these different viruses. So they're all going to be expressing on the surface, right, a a certain specificity because that's what we've built in here. So now we take our phage library, we take those phage and we expose them to our antigen, right? So now this is where the antigen is exposed. So before doing this, right, we have this phage library itself. So now this library is in place. So now we can bring any antigen that we're interested in making an antibody to into our technique. And the technique is going to be, we're going to take the antigen that we're interested in, we're going to bind it to a plastic dish. We're going to take our phage, we're going to put our phage in, the phage you're going to be able to bind. We can wash away unbound phage, right, we take the phage again, we elude them, we put them back in. We do this a a couple of cycles, right, to be able to be sure that all the phage that we are now isolating, right, over here by these phage binding to these antigens are the specific phage we're looking for. We do it over and over and over again, and now we have our antibody molecules. We have our FAB fragments of our antibody molecules that we're interested in. We go back into the phage. We can take them out incorporated them into human monoclonal antibodies or so human antibodies and now we have a total antibody molecule where we didn't have to use any sort of mice or any sort of cell lines or incubators or anything. We now have this very quickly done and very cheaply done method for producing monoclonal antibodies. Okay. So when we can do all these different things, right? we're basically going to take right, the promoter region, maybe we have ECHO-R1 sites, we can add them to the PCR products. These constructs are going to be inserted into the phase, the bacteria phase. Probably going to use a lambda phase. We're going to result in separate heavy and light chain libraries. When we put these phase together, right, they're going to be able to recombine to bring the heavy and the light chains together to make that FAB portion. We can cleave with ECHO-R1, right? That's the site that we built into it. Random joining of the heavy and light chain genes themselves are going to be able to generate an unlimited amount of heavy light chain constructs. We are basically taking our own immune system and st- or not our. Oh, I don't mean our personal immune system, but what we have, depending upon the species that we're using, depending upon the species that we're that we're using these PCR amplifications of, we are basically making an immune system of an individual animal and being able to store it in the freezer. And when we want it, we go in, we grow some phage, we take these phage, we allow these phage to bind to our protein of interest, we isolate those particular phage, we chop out those antibodies, those FAB portions that we're interested in and we go from there. Right? So this is a lot quicker. It's a lot cheaper right, to be able to do this. So we're going to take our lymphocytes themselves and once we construct our phase display library that's our library forever. We don't have to go through this step again and again and again and again. right? We are able to generate our phase display library We mix the library with the target, either a protein or so. The protein binds. We take this particular piece of the phage, we insert it into our antibody molecule, and now we have our drug of interest. Over here, the same sort of idea. We take total RNA from the B cells of whatever animal we're interested in and we make the phage display library. Again, we only have to make the library once. Right, so we make it, we take the phage, we put it and subject it to rounds and rounds and rounds worth of amplification. We take the phage itself, right, we take the FAB portion and we convert the FAB portions back into a full length immunoglobulin molecule. Done. Right? It's a lot cheaper, it's a lot faster. We don't have to worry about animal facilities anymore. Yes, we probably still have to have a way to isolate the the protein. So we're going to put this into some sort of bacteria. So yes, we still have the problem of purification. We still have the problem of big vats to be able to raise, to be able to get these sort of proteins from. But it's a lot cheaper than doing it with eukaryotic animals. We can set up these these sort of technologies now a lot faster and a lot cheaper. Which means that the price of the drugs should start to fall, but I'm cynical enough to believe. I don't know about you guys, but when I get my chips ahoy now, they're about this big. They still cost the same, but they're not as big. So I don't know if the price of these drugs will go down, but that's, that, should theoretically be the, that should theoretically be the point of doing this, right? This should drive down the price because we are driving down the price for generating the antibodies themselves. But I don't have to answer to stockholders, so I can sort of be crazy about it. So the phase display libraries themselves, right? they generate a lot of diversity. Clones containing these random combinations of heavy and light chains can be rapidly screened. In one study, a million clones were screened in two days. This is millions and millions of specificities. If we tried to subclone, remember the other day when we talked about antibody molecules and we were subcloning? That takes weeks and weeks and months and months worth of work to do. Here they did it in two days and they identified a hundred clones. Now it's up to taking those 100 clones, using them in your biological assays and see which one of those clones is going to be effective in inhibiting the biological function that you would be interested in. So we just cut off months and months worth of production. It has the potential to produce an enormous repertoire of antibody molecules without antigen priming and hybridoma technology. So one library in the freezer should last forever and it's going to be able to generate antibodies to any antigen that we have in that we're interested in generating it to. What we got to do is isolate the protein, right? Put it into our assay so that we can screen the phage so this phage are able to bind to that protein that we're interested in, isolate the phage, take those, right? Those particular sequences and put them back into an antibody molecule. One, two, three. It should be very easy to be able to do that. But wait, there's more. Right? We have another technology, a competing technology, and it's called the Xenomouse. Right? Xeno, meaning right? You're afraid of something, right? So basically, the Xenomouse is a mouse that we have used recombinant DNA technology for, and we're going to or we're not going to. We have, we've replaced the mouse immune system or well, I'm not going to say the whole immune system. We've replaced the mouse antibody system with human antibodies. Okay. Two genetic manipulations. We've inactivated the mouse antibody production machinery and we've used stable cloning and we've introduced human immunoglobulin heavy and light chain loci into the mouse. So we're going to take this mouse during an early developmental stage and we're going to use recombinant technology to eliminate the mouse heavy chain and light chain locuses and put in the human heavy chain and light chain locuses. So by genetic modifications on mouse embryonic stem cells, so we're going to take the mouse, right, the, the heavy chain and the kappa chain genes, they're going to be activated, right, in these embryonic stem cells by gene targeted deletion. Right. Deletion of the mouse, right, region completely inhibited the heavy chain recombination machinery and thus abolishing mouse immunoglobulin production. We delete out the mouse C regions, right? We inactivate basically the mouse immunoglobulin, uh, mouse immunoglobulin locus. We totally got rid of it, okay? If we now come in and we cross, right, heavy chains, J regions, and C regions, we can get double inactivation in which production of antibodies and all B cell development were completely arrested. Right? We're going to get rid of basically mouse B cells. We're going to make human B cells. These mice, Maintain the necessity, right? The transacting factors for antibody rearrangements. So we're not getting rid of any of the Rag genes. We're not getting rid of any of anything, you know, like NF kappa B or anything else that we've talked about that we need this to be able to take place, right? Artemis is still a part of there, right? Right. So the rearrangements and and the be able to take the genetic background for the introduction of the human immunoglobulin loci is in there and it has taken place so that we are now going to be able to generate a new sort of a mouse model. We're going to clone in, right? Once we take this mouse, we can use more techniques. We can take, right, the human, the heavy chain and the light chain loci. We can use yeast artificial chromosomes to have stable right, isolation and efficient genetic manipulation of megabyte-sized DNA fragments. Right. Remember, we have got to bring in a whole bunch of DNA. Getting the DNA out of the mouse is easy. We can get rid of it by deletion, but bringing in the human loci is a little bit harder. Right. So these embryonic stem cells were used to transmit human immunoglobulin fragments right into the mouse germline with no apparent deletion and rearrangement and to generate mice expressing human heavy and light chain proteins. We've made a new species, the xenomouse, right? Crossbreeding of the mouse strains yielded a mouse strain expressing fully humanized antibody molecules. So we've gone through a bunch of genetic manipulations. First thing we had to do was inactivate right? The mouse, the heavy chain, and the light chain. We had to introduce the human right, light chain. We had to introduce the human heavy chain loci. We come in, we breed them together, and at the end of the day the xenomouse has no mouse antibody molecules and only human antibody molecules. So the mouse immune system doesn't know any difference. Right? Those T cells that were being educated because we did this in embryonic stem cells Right? Those human loci grew up with this mouse. So when those T cells were being educated, when the immune system of the mouse was starting to come online, it just used its loci of the immunoglobulin molecules, either heavy chain or light chain, just used them. Right? The mouse doesn't know that it's making human antibody molecules. Right? The developmental stages are in place so that they're making antibody molecules, they just happen to be totally human antibody molecules. Well, we've knocked out everything else that has to do with the, with the immune system of the mouse. And people have gone on to do other things with the xenomouse. They've replaced basically all the T-cells. They've replaced all the B-cells. They've replaced all the macrophages by doing genetic manipulations. So we've basically made an entire human immune system, right? With this example here, this the xenomouse, we've only made the entire immunoglobulin system, but other techniques have been done and manipulation of these embryonic stem cells to have human macrophages, human NK cells, human T cells, human B cells. So we have an entire immune system in a mouse now. So now we can have better sort of of predictions of effects of drugs or effects of treatments on human immune systems by doing this manipulation in these mice. But for what we want to talk about, for the xenomouse, we have all these immunoglobulin molecules themselves. So if you look at these different techniques, either humanizing antibodies or using phase display or, or using the xenomouse. In terms of immunogenicity, the humanized antibodies, absolutely. They're still 10% mouse, so there is going to be a little bit of immunogenicity. In phase display in the xenomouse, absolutely no immunogenicity because they are human. Right? These are human constructs of human DNA, so we're making human molecules. The antibody repertoire itself, right? for the humanized antibody, clearly that's going to be limited by the humanization technology. So we're still going to get 10% sort of immunogenicity. For phase display, it's going to be limited by the size of the library. So new techniques are making libraries that have billions and billions of members. All we got to do is just keep subcloning and just keep getting rearranged light chains and rearranged heavy chains. And the more we can do that and the more we can make thousands and millions of phage now, rather than hundreds or thousands of them will get bigger and bigger in terms of the size of the library. And when it comes down to the repertoire in the xenomouse, it's the same as we have. Right? Because it is the human immune system inside the mouse. So all of these things are leading towards right, taking these monoclonal antibodies and using them in clinical use. So when you look at different drugs or different antibodies themselves, right, there is sort of this short key to be able to tell you right, what kind of antibody it is. So if it's a murine antibody, the drug name or the, yeah, the drug name itself, not the generic name, but the drug name is going to end in OMAB. If it's a chimeric or a humanized monoclonal antibody, right, the suffixes will be zislamab or zoomab, Right, These are the, 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 the prearranged sort of way to describe these molecules so that individuals will know what they are. And human monoclonal antibodies have the suffix U-M-A-B. Right? So some of these monoclonal antibodies in therapy, right? these are the, the generic name. They're not the trade names themselves, but there's a whole bunch of them Right. for breast cancer, for arthritis, for Hodgkin's diseases. Right. The top five drugs themselves in the United States, and we've all seen them, Right? If you're watching the NBC nightly news, right, most of the time they're talking about, I don't know, restless leg syndrome or something, but sometimes they start talking about right, all these sort of drug ads. Right? This was a, uh, a change. That, cert, right, that regulations of the, of the drug industry allowed to take place about 10 or 12 years ago where these makers can now advertise their drugs on television. So these are the advertisements you're watching. Some people think this is a bad thing. Because now right, a patient is going to call up their doctor and they're going to say hi. I was watching the news last night and I saw that this drug, you know, it doesn't have to be monoclonal antibodies, it could be any drug. So, you know, I really want to use this drug and the doctors, you know, usually a doctor isn't going to say no to a patient. So again, it's a way for these drug companies to start influence drugs that are being used. So if I'm a drug company and I decide to devote a lot of my time, right, towards television ads so that my target audience is going to call their physicians Right? That might be something I'm going to do. Rather than taking my drug and, and displaying it like in the New England Journal of Medicine or someplace where doctors might be able to recognize it, I'm going to go totally the other way around and allow my patients, right, get that message out to the patients themselves, so they're going to be able to call the doctor themselves. Right? But right now the big five, Avastin, Herceptin, Humira, Remesade, and Rixlulam. I'm sure you've heard of all of those, right? The Phil Mickelson drug. The Phil Mickelson drug is another one. That's Envril. Just in 2010, good old Phil Mickelson, $3.3 billion worth of that drug were sold. $3 billion. This is big time pharmaceutical companies these days, right? Monoclonal antibodies are the wave of the future, right? So Phil's particular drug, right? It's a TNF inhibitor. It's, an, it's a monoclonal antibody that inhibits TNF. We talked about TNF as being a pro-inflammatory cytokine. So if we could turn off the signals of TNF to be able to activate the immune system, right? We could turn off the immune system, basically. And we're specifically gonna target TNF. Right, so that particular drug. There are, there are two other TNF inhibitors: are Humera and Remicade. i right. I've seen the Humera commercials on TV. I'm sure you have. Right, Avastin is an angiogenesis inhibitor, so it's used for tumor cells. Right, to be able to to be able to uh, eliminate tumor cells, it basically shuts off the VEGA receptor. Right, vascular endothelial growth factor receptor, so that these, right, so we're not making, we're not nourishing the tumor with blood and blood vessels anymore. So that's how that one works. Right, what's another one? Uh, right, Herceptin. Right, for breast cancer. Right, this is Her, this is Herceptin right here. Right, it cuts off the HER2 protein. Yeah. We're not really sure what the HER2 protein does, what that receptor does on the surface of a, of a breast cancer cell, but it has something to do with stimulation of that particular cell itself. And if you look at rituximab, that inhibits CD20 on the surface of a B cell. Again a lot of these drugs were just discovered right, serendipitously. We don't know what CD20 does. Right? We don't know what the mechanism for CD20 is, but if we turn it off, turns off B cells, right? It has something to do with calcium fluxes inside the B cell, but if we turn off the B cell, if we don't allow the B cell, we're able to turn off the immune system itself, right? So a lot of these antibodies are out there. There are bispecific antibodies, right? Here's another type of an antibody that has a toxic sort of uh, protein on the surface, right? Radioimmunical chemicals, cytokines, there's immunotoxins. Anything that we can think about to be able to target this tumor cell if we're looking at anti-cancer drugs, that's what we're going to be able to use. Okay. Ooh, sorry, went a little bit late. Have a good Thanksgiving. Enjoy it. Safe travels wherever you're going. See you again on Monday.